Unite True Church. I uh, just want to welcome you to our service. Now, for the past uh, week, or well, last week until today, we've been kind of looking through the topic of uh, discipleship, since we are starting uh, a new discipleship series, um, starting actually uh, today. And so it's not too late for you guys to join our very first session. Our first session starts today at 1 p.m., if, uh, if that's something that tugs at your heart. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the more practical aspects of discipleship. Now, last week we talked about building fortitude through discipleship, but today I want to talk about fulfillment, fulfillment in life, how to have a fulfilled life in Christ. And when it comes to fulfillment, I think there's two key ingredients. The first is joy, and the second one is purpose. When we have these two things together, joy and purpose, we're allowed to live a fulfilled life. And the thing is, when we are filled with joy, right, it fills us, it fuels us with passion, it fuels us with energy, but the thing is, we have to direct this sort of passion and energy towards something, right? And so that's where we have a purpose, where we take all of this energy, take all of this joy, and direct it in a way that brings God's blessings into this world. And to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, I, I just want to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite Christian authors. And C.S. Lewis was someone who found a fulfilled life through the Gospels, and hopefully through this story, it'll begin to perhaps maybe open your eyes to some of the deeper ways that God can move you to find fulfillment in your life. Now, for those of you who aren't too familiar with Lewis's uh, life story, um, Lewis actually wasn't a Christian <laughs> growing up. Um, as a young man, uh, C.S. Lewis, he's very, very skepti skeptical about Christianity and very skeptical about religion in general. Um, his mother died when he was a young kid. I think he was about nine uh, due to cancer. And obviously, as he grew up, he, he had to serve in World War I with the French infantry, um, and he witnessed, you know, thousands dead before his eyes. And so this man, he fought wars, he, he's faced personal tragedies, he has just about a million reasons to doubt not just the existence of God, but to doubt the goodness of God as well. But after World War I, um, Lewis, he, he decided to focus, you know, he was trying to, he was like, well, you know, I, I finished fighting this war, like, you know, like, what do I do now? And so he decided to, to enroll in Oxford to become, you know, one of the world's greatest scholars. Uh, but in the midst of studying, in the midst of his coursework, Lewis began to experience what he called unexpected encounters with joy. He also called these moments stabs of joy. And these would be moments where Lewis would experience these momentary glimpses into a very deeper joy, maybe perhaps even a divine joy, while he was watching the sunrise, while he was reading a great piece of literature, or maybe listening to a symphony. And these momentary stabs of joy, it left Lewis wondering if there was something more. Because what Lewis innately understood, because he studied a lot of philosophy, what Lewis innately understood was that these momentary glimpses of joy actually pointed towards something that is much greater. But Lewis never wanted to admit that this greater thing would be God. But the thing is, the more that Lewis experienced these momentary stabs of joy, the more he realized a profound truth. He realized that permanent joy cannot be found in this world or in the philosophies of this world. It can't be found in academia. It can't be found in his accomplishments. It can't be found in this kingdom of this world. 
And if it can't be found in the kingdom of this world, then Lewis realized that the only logical place he can find it is in the kingdom of God. And the thing is, Lewis never wanted to admit that joy can be found in God alone. Even when Lewis converted to Christianity, he, he said it like this. When I converted to Christ, I was dragged into the kingdom of God, kicking, struggling, resentful, darting my eyes in every direction, looking for a chance to escape. But when he finally submitted, when he submitted completely to God, Lewis finally found the thing that he was searching for, a joy that was deep, a joy that was abiding, and more importantly, a joy that was actually real. And this joy filled Lewis with, with the passion and energy that he never experienced in his entire life. Unlike these stabs of joy he experienced in this world, which was momentary, this new Christian joy was steady and fulfilling. It was a joy that was present during the highs of his life, but also at the very depths, at the very lows of his life as well. And so Lewis, taking his skills in philosophy and literature, Lewis, he, he began to channel all of this newfound joy, all of this newfound energy into writing. And as a result, he became one of the most influential writers in the 20th century. With Lewis's newfound joy in God, he channeled it all with a new purpose. And so he revolutionized Christian philosophy. He wrote one of the most influential children's series of all time, right, the Chronicles of Narnia. And through these writings, Lewis brought God's life and joy into this world. And the thing is, C.S. Lewis, he died November 22, 1963. He wrote about 40 books after converting to Christ. And 50 years later, still today, his books are continually changing lives. And I can confidently say it changed my life as well. And this is what happens when you have joy in the Lord and also a divine purpose. You live a fulfilled life. These are the fruits of a fulfilled life. It leaves a legacy of life change even after we're gone. After, after we're gone. And part of our discipleship process that we're trying to lead here in this church is to begin to help you guys uncover what that type of fulfilled life might look like for you. And so with that said, I want us to take a look at our passage today from John chapter 15, uh, verses 9 to 7, where I believe that Jesus actually gives us uh, the secrets to a very fulfilled life. So turn with us, if you have your Bibles, uh, to John chapter 15, uh, starting from verse 9. And it reads, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now, when it comes to living a fulfilled life in Christ, I think there are three steps 
that we can take. And the fact that there are three steps, I think this is very encouraging because we know that there are certain stages to our growth as Christians, and it also gives us a very clear pathway to walk on, and also a very measurable pathway as well, because we know what milestones to hit along this road. And so let's kind of go through these, you know, three stages. And the first stage of living a fulfilled life is having the ability to look beyond pleasure. And so the first stage of living a fulfilled life is living or looking beyond pleasure. And throughout these past few months and years, uh, basically my mind has constantly been thinking about literally just one thing for like the past three or four years. Uh, my mind has constantly been thinking about the very first command of the Ten Commandments. And so pop quiz, does anyone, not rhetorical, actually expecting a response, does anyone remember what the first command is from the Ten Commandments? There will be no other gods before me. You know, it never really occurred to me how, how ridiculously difficult this command is to fulfill. I think when, when most people, especially if you read the Old Testament and New Testament, I think when, when most people think about this verse or think about this command, they think that, oh, hey, as long as I don't worship gods from other religions, then I'm, I'm good to go, right? I'm not like going around worshiping Buddha or whatever. However, the reality of this verse actually goes incredibly deeper than that. When we examine that commandment through the lens of joy, it forces us to ask ourselves, where do I try to find joy and fulfillment in my life? And at this point, I, I think it's important to differentiate between joy and pleasure. If we can just go to the next slide. I think it's very important to differentiate between joy and pleasure. When I speak of joy, I use it in the sense of a deep state of constant, constant and consistent well-being. It is something or someone that allows me to not only just feel secure, but it's also something that allows me to experience this complete satisfaction, absolutely 24-7. And this is different from happiness or pleasure, which are just temporary states of mind which come and go, right? These are the stabs of joy that C.S. Lewis mentioned before because these pleasures, they vanish as quickly as they come. And so there's pleasure there's the pleasure of, or happiness of eating good food, the pleasure or happiness of spending time with family, uh, the pleasure of getting a paycheck, the happiness of intimacy itself. And there's nothing wrong with these pleasures. There's nothing wrong with happiness. But these pleasures and happiness, if we understand them correctly, we realize that they're ultimately fleeting. They come and they go. But what we as humans do in turn is that we try to turn these momentary pleasures, these momentary glimpses of happiness into something that will bring us ultimate joy. What we actually do is we turn these things into our new gods. We end up confusing pleasure and joy. And what we as humans do is we end up looking for the next hit of pleasure. We end up worshiping the created instead of the creator we end up in idolatry. And if you're around me, or if you look back at my sermons, you'll notice that this is what I talk about literally all the time, because without this first step of recognizing our idolatry, it is impossible for us to experience the love of God. If we keep looking for joy outside of God, we'll never find it. And we'll always carry an emptiness around us. 
And that is why at the start of Jesus' ministry, the first thing that Jesus calls the people to do is to repent. That is why Jesus kept telling the people over and over and over again that you can't worship both God and money at the same time. That is why Jesus also says that no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what he's trying to say here is that you cannot try to love God with your being while your eyes are always turned backwards, looking at the world. That's also why Jesus' command to us is to love the Lord your God with all of your hearts, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. It's not to love God with the majority of your heart, soul, and mind. It's not to love God with 51%. It's to love God with 100% of our being. I want us to imagine this scenario. You know, imagine if, if your spouse or, her, or if the person you're dating would one day say, say this to you. They would say, you know, honey, I love you, but I want to take 10% of my time and energy and devote it to someone else. You know, honey, you give me joy, but I want to find more joy outside of this relationship, outside of this marriage. You know, that, you know, that would be completely outrageous, right? Like, you know, like, no, right? You're either 100% with me or, or this isn't going to work. And so to find joy, complete joy and complete fulfillment, God demands our 100%. And he does this not just because he's a jealous God, but because there's actually no other place where we can find it. It's not just a command from God to love him with all of our hearts, but it's actually a truth as well. If God is the only source of lasting joy, where else can we go to find it? The thing is, if, if I left the sermon here, right, it would be pretty much impossible for any one of us to reach the stage of loving God with all of our everything. It would be impossible for us to love God with 100% of our being if it's just based on our willpower alone. Because if it's based on our willpower alone, uh, we will fail. In fact, actually, we have already failed, which is why Paul says we are dead in our transgressions. And so the only way for us to love God is if we realize that we are loved first. If you look back at, at our passage, this is what it says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And understanding that we are loved first, it's not just a step in the right direction, but this is actually the entire foundation of a fulfilled life. Receiving Christ's love first is what sets our foundational joy. And when we speak of Christ's love, I think sometimes it can feel a little bit, you know, like some sort of like abstract theological concept. But what we're actually talking about here is an action-oriented love. A love that is so deep, so transformative, that it actually redefines our entire existence. It's the kind of love, kind of action-oriented love, that compelled God to send his only son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. This is the same love that was displayed on the cross where Jesus bore the weight of our sins, our failures, and our brokenness. And by absorbing all of our sins like a sponge, God now offers, in the place of our sins, the hope of a new life. And in the place of our brokenness, God now promises us joy as a fruit of the Spirit. And understanding and experiencing this love of Christ is so crucial to our journey as Christians. But the thing is, for the most part, I think for us, 
the love of God really sits as sort of an intellectual understanding without a personal and profound experience. So how do we turn this love, how do we make this love real to us so that we can begin to live a life that is filled with joy? And the answer actually lies in the process of discipleship. You see, discipleship isn't just about learning the right answers or memorizing things. Discipleship isn't just educational. Discipleship is an active pursuit of the God who loved us first. Because in discipleship, we are taught how to really pray, to pray in a way that's an actual conversation with our Lord, which, where we can even experience his voice and his presence. We cover that actually in session five where we learn how to have fellowship with God. In discipleship, we're also taught how to read the Bible in a way that's transformative, right? I talked about that last week with the hand illustration. We have an entire section on studying the importance of obedience and how obedience leads to victory and freedom. We have another section on submission, on how to actively begin to reframe our lives to make Christ the Lord of our lives. You see, the entire process of discipleship if you think about it, and if you look at it carefully, the entire process of discipleship is action-oriented. Not intellectually oriented, but action-oriented. Because it's only through actions that we can experience the love of God. You can't think your way into a relationship. The love that you have from your family, friends, and partners, it's not some sort of abstract intellectual love, right? But it's a lived reality because it's a love that is displayed through actions. No one sits in their room and, and ponders about the love that their partner has for them, but they reflect and they experience the love again through actions. God's love for us is not abstract. It's not intellectual again action-oriented. He came, he healed, he set people free, he died on the cross, he took on our sins, he resurrected, and he sent the Spirit now to us. Action-oriented love. Likewise, in our discipleship class, it's the process of not just learning, but now performing the actions required to experience this foundational joy of being loved first by God. And so as we engage in these disciplines that we learn in our class, God's love actually begins to grow in us. Now the thing is, God's love was always already in our hearts to begin with because he loved us first. But like a radio wave, right, it's always present, but we begin to learn how to tune our hearts to the right frequencies. And as we begin to experience God's infinite love more deeply, interesting things begin to happen. Our attachments to our idols in this world begins to loosen. The habitual sins of our past don't have the same grip on us anymore. We don't try to find joy from empty pleasures anymore. And as we begin to let go of these idols more and more, we're able to tune in into God's love more and more. And the more we tune in to God's love, the more joy we experience in God. And the more joy we experience in God, the more we stick to our spiritual disciplines. And the more we stick to our dis spiritual disciplines, the more we can, again, tune in with God. And the cycle continues, each stage reinforcing each other. 
And so if we pause for a moment and, and if we reflect, I want to ask you guys, how real is Christ's love in your lives? Are we just going through the motions? Are we looking entirely in the wrong places? And as we ponder those questions, we might actually come to the uncomfortable conclusion that, no, Christ's love actually isn't real in my life at this moment. And if this is your conclusion, I want to encourage you by saying that this joy is actually not beyond your reach. It's entirely achievable for all of us within this lifetime, but it requires us to tune into the love that God has shown us first. And if you want to learn how to tune into God's love, I encourage you to, again, join us for discipleship. But let's assume that, you know, you do experience this overwhelming, constant, and consistent joy with the Lord from the moment you wake in the morning till the moment you sleep. You have the first half of a fulfilled life, right? Remember, the first half of a fulfilled life is having joy, but the second half is purpose, and through discipleship and through the spiritual disciplines, we learn to experience the love of God. But the thing about spiritual disciplines is that is not how we demonstrate love to God, right? God never said, if you love me, read your Bible twice a day, pray five times a day, and then practice your scripture memory, right? That's, that's exactly what God did not say. Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, that if you love me, keep my commands. And what is Jesus' commands? In our passage, verse 12, we see this. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. There's no mystery. There's no secret to figuring out your purpose in life. A godly life and a purposeful life is a life where we love others just as Christ has loved us. In our youth ministry, the, the kids, they were, they were once talking about you know, how absolutely stressed they were, right? They were like, oh my God, I need to figure out, I need to find out like, what I need to do for the rest of my life because they feel like they're on this, this pivotal, pivotal you know, crossroads where they need to have everything figured out. And, and as, as I was listening to them, I, I had this like Holy Spirit moment because in Asian families, we're very practical when it comes to figuring out what to do for a living, right? Just do whatever makes the most money, basically. In more Western families, the, the advice is more like, hey, do what makes you happy in life. And of course, in the ideal scenario, you would combine both of these and you would be happy with a lot of money. But what I immediately realized is actually both approaches are wrong, and even if you combine them together, it is actually still wrong. And it's wrong because what Scripture teaches us about our occupation is that our occupation is our primary means of serving others and loving others. And so when it comes to thinking about our jobs, our priorities are actually completely upside down. We think our jobs are meant to elevate us, elevate my happiness, elevate my wealth. But our jobs are actually meant to elevate other people, to serve other people, to love other people. The happiness and the money is honestly a bonus. And when this realization dawned upon me, through the inspiration of the Spirit, you know, I'm obviously not smart enough to think about this myself, I asked the kids this, while they were like, you know, figuring out like, oh, you know, what do we do for a living? I asked them this, how do you desire to love others through your job? And they looked at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> because, you know, no one asked them this question before. How do you love people through your job? Like, who asks them this? But as the question sat in their mind, 
they began to realize the divine wisdom behind that question. And I think that, I believe this very firmly, that God has given all of us different desires and different gifts that are meant to serve each other in different ways. For some of us, we are wired in a way where we desire to demonstrate God's love through arts and through the music. For others, they are wired by God in a way to demonstrate their love, perhaps through healing, whether that is physical, mental, or spiritual. God has wired some of us to demonstrate love through problem solving, literally solving other people's problems. And so tax season is upon us, so I'm very thankful for those who have the gift of uh, problem solving the dreaded US tax codes. But when we begin to look at occupation or our jobs from this perspective, from the perspective of love and of service, this is when life truly begins to become fulfilling. God has called me to love. And God has designed me to demonstrate my love in this specific way. Then let me live that love out to serve other people. And so I think this is a wonderful exercise, not just for, for the kids here who are thinking about what to do in the future, but for us as we're doing our current jobs. Am I wired? Am I doing the thing that God has wired me to do? Am I serving other people the way that God has desired me to serve others? But one way that God has universally, for all of us, has universally called us to love is to disciple others. One of Jesus' final commands given to us before he ascended to heaven, he said this, and this is a command given to all Christians, not just the apostles, not just the pastors, all Christians. He says this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We as Christians are called to make disciples, not just converts, but disciples. This is a command that we must all follow. For those of you who are, who are more advanced in your faith but avoided discipling others because maybe you were never taught how to disciple, I invite you to join us in this course as well. The material might be pretty easy theologically, but by going through the process of watching me disciple you and disciple others, you begin to learn by example on how to do this act of discipling. And I firmly believe that everyone gathered here today is given the ability and given the gift of discipleship. Otherwise, this would not be a universal command from our Lord. But we don't do it, sometimes because we've never been discipled ourselves, or maybe we've been discipled poorly. So if you'd like to experience the most fulfilled life of transforming the lives of every single person you come across, then I firmly believe that discipleship is for you. If you'd like to experience the most fulfilled life where you're walking in daily joy in the Lord, then again, I believe that discipleship is for you. If you have trouble letting go of the idols that are enslaving you, then discipleship is also for you as well. So we're having our first session here today at 1 p.m. downstairs um, in the basement. And so let this be a new year of change for you all. Let this be a new year, a new year to start a fulfilled life in Christ. But for the time being, I, I just want to invite us all uh, for a moment of prayer. So please join me um, in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, today we, we come to you first in confession. Um, Lord, we, it's honest that we have tried to find joy in anything and everything that is not you. It's completely nonsensical for us to do this because we've been disappointed by the world over and over and over again, but we keep turning back. You know, I ask myself, what for? But Lord, let us find our joy in you and you alone. You call us to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and you do this not just as a command, but because you know that this is ultimately what is best for us. And so free us, Father, from the clutches of sin. Free us from our insanity in trying to find lasting joy from momentary pleasures. Let us root ourselves completely in you. And we pray, Lord, that as, as we root ourselves into your very being, as, as branches are rooted into the vine, we pray that we will uncover our calling to love. We pray that we'll be able to do that, not just through our occupations, but we also pray that we'll be able to do that through the gift of discipling others. Lord, you didn't just come here to heal our diseases. You didn't just come here to restore sight to the blind. You came to develop within us an imperishable life. You came here to disciple, to disciple the 12 apostles. And so let us do the same for every single person we meet, to work with you in your mission, in your desire to seek and save those who are lost. Help us, Lord, to find this wonderfully fulfilled life in you and in your mission. We pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.